2 Samuel chapter 7, beginning in verse 1, it says, Now it came to pass when the king was dwelling in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies all around, that the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells inside tent curtains. Then Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But it happened that night that the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build a house for me to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the time that I brought the children of Israel up from Egypt, even to this day, but have moved about in a tent and in a tabernacle. Wherever I have moved about with all the children of Israel, have I ever spoken a word to anyone from the tribes of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people, over Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone, and have cut off all your enemies from before you, and have made you a great name like the name of the great men who are on the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more. Nor shall the sons of wickedness oppress them any more as previously, since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and have caused you to rest from all your enemies. Also the Lord tells you that he will make you a house when your days are fulfilled, and you rest with your fathers. I will set up your seed after you, who will come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men, with the blows of the sons of men, but my mercy shall not depart from him. As I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you, and your house and your kingdom shall be established forever before you. Your throne shall be established forever. According to all these words and according to all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. Then David, then King David went in and sat before the Lord. And he said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you have brought me this far? And yet this was a small thing in your sight, O Lord God. And you have also spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come. Is this the manner of man, O Lord God? For what more can David say to you? For you, Lord God, know your servant. For your word's sake and according to your own heart, you have done all these great things to make your servant know them. Therefore you are great, O Lord God. For there is none like you, 
nor is there any God beside you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And who is like your people, like Israel, the one nation on earth whom God went to redeem for himself as a people, to make for himself a name, and to do for yourself great and awesome deeds for your land, before your people whom you redeemed for yourself from Egypt, the nations and other gods." For you have made your people Israel your own people forever, and you, Lord, have become their God. Now, O Lord God, the word which you have spoken concerning your servant and concerning his house, establish it forever and do as you have said. So let your name be magnified forever, saying, The Lord of hosts is the God over Israel, and let the house of your servant David be established before you. For you, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, have revealed this to your servant, saying, I will build you a house. Therefore your servant has found it in his heart to pray this prayer to you. And now, O Lord God, you are God And your words are true. And you have promised this goodness to your servant. Now therefore let it please you to bless the house of your servant. That it may continue before you forever. For you, O Lord God, have spoken it. And with your blessing, let the house of your servant be blessed forever. This chapter begins with a passion, and it ends with a prayer. God made David's heart. So it stands to reason that God has the ability to place in David's heart longings, desires, dreams. God made you. So it stands to reason that God can place in your heart longings, desires, dreams. David wants to build a house for the Lord and the Lord God doesn't want David to build him a a temple. God wants to build David a house. In one of the most remarkable chapters in all of the Bible, God makes a most remarkable promise. God's plan to provide a Messiah will come through the house of David. There has been a covenant that God made with Adam and Eve, that God made with Noah, that God made with Abraham, that God made with Moses. And now we find out God makes a covenant with David. And if you neglect this chapter and if you don't understand this chapter, then the rest of the Bible and all of the New Testament will become incomprehensible to you. Now, again, in one of the most remarkable chapters, God makes a remarkable promise. God is going to provide a Messiah, and the Messiah is going to come through the house of David. As a matter of fact, J. Vernon McGee gives an excellent introduction to this chapter. I don't have time to read all of his introduction, but I want to read just a few lines to you. He writes, and I quote, Frankly, it's very difficult. To understand the prophets from this point on without knowing about this covenant. One of the many reasons people find themselves so hopelessly confused in the study of prophecy is because they don't pay attention to a chapter like this. 
2 Samuel 7 is by far the most significant chapter thus far in the Old Testament. Now you might dispute that. I'm not reading J. Vernon anymore. You may not even agree with it. But let me continue. The New Testament opens with, quote, the book of the generation of Jesus Christ, the son of David. That's important because the promises God made to David are to be fulfilled prophecy, unquote. Now, I want you to understand something. A temple will eventually be built in Jerusalem. It will be built by Solomon. That temple will be destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar. Another temple will be rebuilt by those people who returned during the time of Nehemiah and Ezra. And it will continue to be rebuilt all the way through the time of the birth and the life and the ministry and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Amy Grant sings a song that goes something like this. If anything good happens in life, it comes from Jesus. Another old hymn says, What he takes or what he gives us shows the Father's love so precious. But for many people, that's a, that's a concept that seems utterly impossible to comprehend. You mean anything and everything, all things come from the Lord? Yeah, the Lord will sometimes say yes to us. The Lord will sometimes say no to us. The Lord will sometimes say, wait. When God says no, it isn't always because God is punishing you or disciplining you or chastising you. When God says no, it may mean I want you to go in a different direction. I want to redirect your life. And some of you have prayed to God and the Lord has said no. Why can't I marry that person? Why can't I be with that person? Why can't I have that job? Why can't I go in that direction? Why can't I do this? And the Lord says, no, I have something else for you. And you say, I want what I want. And I don't care what you think. Guess what? The moment that you decide to reject God's best for your life, you make a serious, terrible error. We tend to think of love as giving, but sometimes love involves taking away something that wouldn't be the best for you. Now, each and every one of you as a parent would realize that if you had a four-year-old or a five-year-old child, would you place a loaded thirty-eight under the Christmas tree and go, hey, look, you know, the Second Amendment gives all Americans the right to bear arms. See, you're laughing because of the absurdity of the illustration. You know, yes, the Constitution and gives us the right to bear arms, but is it a good idea for a four-year-old to bear arms? What do you think the answer is? So imagine the four-year-old says, Mom, Dad, I want my very own gun. And you say, no. Is it because you hate the child? Or is it because you love the child? I want to ask you a question. Have you ever wanted something so bad that it almost became like a taste in your mouth? 
there was a job or a relationship or a direction that you wanted to go? Have you ever experienced a setback and you thought God would never use you again? Have you ever failed magnificently? Have you ever felt like marrying a particular person, taking a particular job, leaving a job, going to school, leaving the school, only to find out that the plan of God was something very different from what you wanted for your life? You see, David is praying And look what it says in verse 1. Now it came to pass when the king was dwelling in his house and the Lord had given him rest from all his enemies all around. Now I want you to pause for just a moment and picture yourself with David. David is in a great place in his life. He is the king. Jerusalem is the capital. His friends from the north have built him a beautiful cedar palace. And when you see the word cedar... Read expensive. Because cedar was an expensive wood. All is quiet on the home front. His domestic policies are going very well. His foreign policy is going as well as can be expected when you consider you're surrounded on all sides by people who hate your guts. His, he has money in the bank. Now remember, David is no stranger to stress. David knows what it's like to have fights. He knows about blood. He knows about guts. He knows about tears. And David is experiencing one of those rare, calm points in his life where he has time to just kick back, relax, pray, meditate. Have you ever had a situation like that? For whatever reason, your world wasn't falling apart and you, you had an opportunity to say, Hey, Lord. You know, there's no drama and there's no trauma in my life right now and things are going pretty good. Hey, what is it that you'd like me to do? That's what David starts thinking. David starts thinking, hey, what what can I do for the Lord? This isn't right. I'm living in a mansion and God's living in a tent. What a bummer for God. You know, I want to do something special for the Lord. And David begins to dream a dream. Something he could do for God. By the way, have you ever had a precious, sacred moment in your life, free from trial, free from drama, free from stress, free from conflict, free from pain, where you're experiencing, like David, prosperity or or success or peace. There's no Philistines to fight. There's no giants to slay. There's no Saul to run from. And here's your life. You have a life where you get to watch your children grow up. And David is standing by the fireplace and he's thinking deeply and he's reflecting deeply. For you, it may have been in a hospital where you had a lot of downtime. You start to pause and you start to think and you start to take an assessment of your own life and you begin to think about your life and what your life means and and if it matters and what God wants to do with your life. Many years ago, my uncle wrote me a letter around Christmas time and he had been thinking about his his life and our family. And he had come to one of those transition points in his life and he confessed that he felt like he'd been less than a good uncle and that he wanted to spend more time with his family. Perhaps you know what it's like to have time to pray and reflect. And as you pray and reflect and you ask the question, Lord, 
What is it that you want from me and how can I serve you and how can I please you? You know, sometimes we're in positions in our life where we think, what do I have to do? What's the bare minimum I need in order to still be a Christian? You know, we think of Christianity like a bank deposit. Hey, you know what? How much has to be in my free checking account so it'll still remain free? And if I drain it down to the lowest point possible, will you close my account? And some of you have your thoughts about Christianity that way. How little can I keep in the account and still call myself a Christian? How many commandments do I have to keep? How often do I have to go to church? How often do I have to read the Bible? How many minutes a day do I have to spend praying before I can legitimately call myself a Christian? Hey, you know what? That's no way to live. David, instead of thinking, what are the minimum things I need to do in order to please God, begins to think, forget the minimum. What incredible, wonderful thing can I do to give you joy and to make you happy? And in verses 2 and 3, David reveals his dream to Nathan. It says the Nathan that the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells inside ten curtains. Now remember what the ark of God is. It's the ark of the covenant that represents the presence of God in the midst of the people. That's what the ark is. It is the visible, tangible representation of the presence of God in the midst of the people. And it says, Then Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. Now, this is the first mention, by the way, of Nathan in the Bible. And many of you who are familiar with the Bible know that he's going to play a much larger role in David's life later on. He will become David's counselor and confidant. This is the same Nathan who will later confront David about his sin with Bathsheba. And Nathan does what many good friends do. Has someone ever shared a dream with you and said, this is my dream? When I became a Christian, it was my dream to become a Calvary pastor. And it was my dream to plant churches. Now imagine you have a dream and you share that dream with somebody else. And clearly, you know, when you have a dream, sometimes people will say, hey, you know, that's a great dream. And and that's exactly what Nathan does. And so... Nathan does what a lot of our friends do. He encourages David to pursue his dream. And and for good reason. He doesn't see any good reason not to. And I want to point something out to you. The Bible doesn't condemn David for having a dream. As a matter of fact, God commends David for his heart. David's heart seems to be in the right place. And his motives seem to be pure. But God doesn't want David to build his house. David doesn't seem to have selfish or impure reasons. He only wants to glorify God. Now, this should be an important point for each and every one of you. You might dream a dream, and the dream in and of itself is a good thing. It's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. And so, sometimes God will seize quiet moments and use them to reveal plans for our life. And when God takes those... Sometimes we dream dreams. And as we're dreaming dreams, we're dreaming dreams of going into the ministry or we're dreaming dreams of being used by God. 
You know, I remember asking Chuck Smith when I was a very young pastor about how he came to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And he talked about how as a young man, having grown up in a Christian family, he went to a Christian youth camp. And that at that youth camp, he gave his life to Christ. And he felt that God was calling him into the, the ministry. And, and, and I suspect that camps and retreats and places where you can go and be alone with God are great places to hear from God. And a lot of you have been in circumstances where in those quiet times of personal devotion and transition in your life as you're praying and you're saying, Lord, where should I go to school? Lord, who should I marry? Lord, what should I do? That God begins to speak to you. Maybe it was on a long drive or a nameless road. Maybe it was during or after a church service. And you dared whisper the words, God, what would you like me to do? What would you like me to do? Maybe you still don't have a dream. You know, some dreams are from God, but some are not. And when you have a friend like Nathan, a prophet no less, say, Do what you want. God is with you. It can be terribly disappointing to find out that God doesn't want you to pursue your dream after all. You know, in my dream of becoming a pastor and and being a church planter, I grew up with a guy named Skip Heitzig. He and I went to high school together, and and we sort of grew up in the ministry together. And I, I was, in my senior year of high school, and of all things, a Jesus commune. And um, I can't believe my parents allowed me to actually join a commune. But it was a Christian commune. And we had a lot of time to pray and, and to witness. And it was a great time for me. But I prayed. And I had often prayed about being in the ministry. And, and um, I was working at a radio station in Southern California and uh, Skip called me, and we talked about me moving my, from, from Southern California to Albuquerque. Up, We were just planting a church there, and it was taking off. And, uh, and Skip says, quit your job. Come on out. And so I quit my job. I had been working seven years for the Department of Social Services, and I quit my job. And after I quit my job, one week later, Skip called me up, and he goes, the Lord's kept me up all night. Yeah. And the Lord has said to me that it's not a good idea for you to come out right now. What? I've already quit my job. Sorry. Father knows best. See, now you laugh, but as soon as he said those words, Father knows best, I knew that they were true. You know, it was an interesting time in my life. I had just met a young girl, and we had started dating. And I said to this young girl, I'm going to Albuquerque. And you know, whatever will be, will be. The future's not ours, you see. Que sera, sera. (laughs) And if we somehow meet into the future, hey, that'll be a great thing. But that young woman, God had a plan and a purpose. It was God's plan and purpose for me to marry this woman. I'm going to admit something to you, but you can't tell anyone else. I was terrified. 
of getting married. Have you ever met someone who had trust issues and commitment issues? But God had a plan and a purpose. God's plan and his purpose was that I was going to marry this person. And so God arranged it so that I had to stay and face my future. Sometimes what we want, we have no idea. And sometimes what we ask for, we have absolutely no idea. Sometimes we have dreams, but God has a plan and a purpose for us. You know, some things aren't from God and should never be forced. But make no mistake about it. God knows what's best for you. And if you will listen and in humility submit and obey, things will go very, very well. And if you don't submit and obey, things will go very, very hard. Now, back at the ranch, look at verse 4. But it happened that night that the word of the Lord came to Nathan saying, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build a house for me to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the time that I brought the children of Israel up from Egypt even to this day, but have moved about in a tent and a tabernacle. He's making a reference to the tabernacle in the wilderness. Remember the Ark of the Covenant and the tabernacle was a portable tabernacle. And in verse 7 it says, Wherever I have moved about with all the children of Israel, have I ever spoken a word to anyone from the tribes of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? In other words, out of all the 40 years when we were wandering in the wilderness, did I go, dude, this is hardly a raw deal. You know, here I am, the God of the universe, and you've got this cracker box pup tent. By the way, the tabernacle was way more than a pup tent. He says in verse 8, Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep to be ruler over my people, over Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone. And I've cut off all your enemies from before you and have made you a great name, like the name of the great men who are on the earth. Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may dwell in a place of their own and move no more, nor shall their sons of wickedness oppress them anymore as previously since the time that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel and have caused you to rest from all your enemies. Also, the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. So the, the, the long and short of it is this. You want to build me a house? Well, guess what? I have a different idea. I'm going to build you a house, a dynasty. Now, God's response comes through a man. As a friend and as a counselor and as an encourager, he says, hey, do what you want. And then the Lord shows up and says, Nathan, I need you to think carefully. Now, I want you to think about this for just a moment. Has God made a mistake? No. Has Nathan made a mistake? Maybe. It would have been different if he said, hey, I don't see any reason why you can't. But then now God is going to give him a reason and say, uh-oh, I need you to think carefully. God's response through Nathan is the word of God to David. Now, you may not have a personal prophet in your life. 
But the Bible makes it abundantly clear that we have a compilation of information, prophetic words that are given to us, the word of God, the promises in the Bible and the principles in the Bible are given to you. The word of God, it's called the Bible and you can trust it with your life. Does God use the Bible to confirm and redirect people's lives? I think that the answer is yes. Imagine you fall in love with an unbeliever and then you start reading the book of 1 Corinthians and you read Paul's admonition where it says, do not be unequally yoked with an unbeliever. You have a couple of choices. Obey or disobey. Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands because I don't need a show of hands. But when the Bible gives you very specific instructions on how you should proceed, the chances are those are the instructions of how you should proceed. You know, when I came to Denver, I prayed. And I asked the Lord to give me a word from the Lord. And as I prayed and as I began to ask the Lord, Lord, what is it that you would have me to do and how would you have me to do it? I turned to Joshua chapter 1 verses 6 through 9 and and there it says, Be strong and of good courage for to this people you shall divide as an inheritance the land which I swore to their fathers to give them. Be strong, be courageous that you may observe to do. Uh, according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you, do not turn from the right hand or to the left, that you may prosper wherever you go. This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that's written in it. In other words, think about the Bible. And when you're not thinking about the Bible, talk about the Bible. Think about it and talk about it, for then you will make your way prosperous. Then you will have good success. And then verse 9 really stuck, stuck out to me. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid. Do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. And I thought, wow. If I go to Cleveland, the Lord will be with me. If I go to Austin, Texas, the Lord will be with me. And I thought, Man, if I go to Cleveland, the Lord will have to be with me because Cleveland, I mean, why would I go there? And so I'm reading it as if it's geography, but it's not geography that God has in mind. It isn't Cleveland or Austin or Florida or Denver that God had in mind when he said, Be strong and of good courage, for I will be with you wherever you go. When we prayed and we made the decision to come to Denver, two weeks later, my wife was diagnosed with breast cancer. And I had to make a very difficult choice. Do we stay so she can get treatment? Or do we go to Denver without health insurance? And so we stayed. And she received treatment. And she recovered completely. And then we began to understand something. There was a journey that we began to take together. A journey of trust and a journey of dependence and a journey of humility and submission to what God was doing. Because when we came to Denver, I had to find a job. But I got to tell you something. Finding a job is easy compared to cancer. And then I started a Bible study. But starting a Bible study was easy compared to cancer. And then people started to come. But guess what? Having 
people come was easy compared to cancer. And then finding a, a church where we could meet, that was easy compared to cancer. You see, there was a journey and there was a place where I had to go and where my wife had to go. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 4, it says, But it happened that night that the word of the Lord came to Nathan. And remember what it says, saying, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, Would you build a house for me to dwell in? 1 Chronicles chapter 17, verses 3 and 4 puts it even more bluntly. In 1 Corinthians chapter 17, verse 3, it says, But it happened that night that the word of God came to Nathan, saying, Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, You shall not build me a house to dwell in. What a bummer. Nathan had to go back and tell David what the Lord said. You know, Skip Heitzig had to go back and tell me that going to Albuquerque and going on staff was not something that was going to happen right at that moment, that I had to wait. And I didn't want to wait. And sometimes the Lord will address you and speak to you and redirect you. It wasn't God's plan to use David to build the temple, at least not in the way that David dreamed. It was a great idea. It was a noble idea. It was a God-honoring idea. It just wasn't God's plan. And sometimes you might have good thoughts and noble thoughts and great plans and lofty goals. But it isn't God's will. And it isn't God's plan. And so when it says in verses 7 and 8 of 2 Samuel, Wherever I have moved about all that the children of Israel, have I spoken a word to anyone about the tribes of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? I'm not out here in the cold wondering what's going on. Now, therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the sheepfold, from following the sheep to be ruler over my people, over Israel. Now, I want you to think this through. God doesn't just blow David off. He doesn't blow off the plan or even the sentiment. He affirms David. He reminds David of his plans and his purposes for David. And think about it. When you're willing to pray and you're willing to hear from God and you're willing to hear the answer from God, it isn't unusual for God to say, don't you understand something? I didn't save you for no good reason. There was a reason why I took you from the place where you used to be and the circumstances that you used to experience. I have a plan for you. I have a purpose for you. He reminds David where he comes from and what God did to call David into his current circumstances. He reminds David I made you king. I gifted you. I chose you to lead my people and shepherd them. But I haven't called you to build a temple. Not everyone is called to build a church. And not everyone is called to build a temple. Paul will later write in the New Testament. One person plants and another person waters. But it's God who gives the increase. And in verse 9 it says, And I have been with you wherever you have gone. And I have cut off all your enemies from before you. 
And I have made you a great name like the name of the great men there on the earth. Now those of you who have been with me in 1 Samuel and in the opening chapters of 2 Samuel and you've walked with me as he's slain the giant, as he's run from Saul, as he's experienced pain and heartbreak, as he goes to a place where his wife and his children and all the men have kidnapped them and taken them away. You've gone with him through the trials and through the triumphs. And you realize something, that there were times in David's life where you couldn't even for a moment imagine that God was anywhere near. When he's in the land of the Philistine and he's pretending like he's mentally ill. But God affirms and reminds him. You know all of those times? The times when I seemed so far away, so distant, those times of rebellion and disobedience, those times of personal detachment, even when you decided in your mind or in your heart to detach from the plans and purposes, there was never a moment that I wasn't with you, planning, purposing, redirecting, molding, shaping, in the darkness, in the pain, in the difficulties. David, I'm the one who made you famous. I am the one who made you successful. I am the one who conquered your enemies and put you in a position where I could use you. In verse 10, he says, Moreover, I will appoint a place for my people Israel. It's me who has established them in the land. Plant them in a place where they will dwell. In a place where the sons of wickedness oppress them any more as previously. I put you in a position of safety and security. And in in verse 11. Since the time I commanded judges to be over my people Israel. And have caused you to rest from all your enemies. Also the Lord tells you that he will make you a house. And all of a sudden the Lord drops a bomb on David. You want to build me a house? I'm going to build you a house. What? Yeah. I'm going to build you a house. Lord, I already have a house. It's not that kind of a house. It's a different kind of a house. I am going to prepare something that you had no idea. David, you may not be able to fulfill your dream. Here you are, you're crying out to me and say, Lord, I have this dream and I want to fulfill my dream, but I want to fulfill your dream in a way that you never imagined. I want to fulfill your dream through your son. Now, God isn't suggesting that we live out our dreams vicariously through our children. God isn't mad at David. This probably isn't the judgment of God because David has sinned or did something wrong, although he did plenty wrong. God is simply redirecting David's plans to suit God's will. And some people aren't content when God says no. Some people refuse to embrace the mystery of his will. We want everything neat and clean. We want no nonsense. We want our plans to be God's plans. And we want our will to be God's will. We want our thinking to be God's thinking. Chuck Swindoll writes, and when it isn't, we wonder what's wrong. Because it's not working out. Like we want it to work out. In 2 Chronicles chapter 6, verses 7 through 9, it says, Now it was in the heart of my father, David, 
to build a temple for the name of the Lord God of Israel. But the Lord said to my father David, Whereas it was in your heart to build a temple for my name, you did well in that it was in your heart. Nevertheless, you shall not build the temple, but your son, who will come from your body, he shall build the temple for my name. I want to draw special attention to Solomon's words in 2 Chronicles chapter 6 and verse 8. If you have a Bible, you might want to turn there because this is an important sentence. It says, you did well that it was in your heart. God didn't see the desire of David's heart as something bad. God is in effect saying, thank you for the generous offer. Thank you for your sensitive heart. But no thanks. I have plans for somebody else to build the temple. Now, I want you to just pause for a moment and ask yourself this question. What does that mean to me? How do I apply that to my life? I think in part when God says no, it isn't because of rejection or discipline necessarily. God may simply have other plans. You wanted to marry that person. You wanted to get that job. You wanted to go into that ministry. But God had other plans. It may have been a long time since you were in youth camp or a church service. It may have been a long time since you promised God that you were going to go on the mission field. It may be a long time when you promised that you were going to enter the ministry, you were going to finish school, you were going to pursue the dream. You were talking that from five years from now or 10 years from now or 20 years from now or 30 years from now, you want to be doing this or you want to be doing that. And every once in a while, you might ask the question, whatever happened to my dream. I set my heart on God. Chuck Swindoll writes, quote, usually they're living in the backwash of guilt because they think that they're no longer walking in the will of God. Hey, it was, a, it was well that it was in their heart, but who is to say that it was in fact his will? Perhaps the very road they're traveling is God's will for them. And it took his saying no to put them on the right road. You see, here's part of the deal. It is always a good idea to seek God's will every day. It's a good idea that even if you've made a deal with God, and God doesn't want to deal with you, <laughs> that it's a good idea for you to say, Lord, I'm going to trust your judgment. And your will. The most important thing isn't David's dream to make happy, to make God happy. In other words, the most important thing is not David's dream to make God happy. It is God's will or God's plan for David's life. And you need to be able to understand something. That God's will and God's plan for David's life is going to be a series of circumstances that's going to forge a series of chains that's going to link to the ultimate promise that God is going to provide a savior. That's the idea. It is God's dream to make David's son the savior of the world. That's worth, list, that's worth saying again, isn't it? It's God's dream to make David's son the savior 
of the world. It's not wrong for you to ask God, Lord, I want to do something really great for you. I want to do something magnificent for you. I want to do something special for you. Is that your will? Is that your plan? Is that what you want? By the way, again, not everybody's called to build temples. Some people are called to be soldiers, and some people are called to be kings, and some people are called to be wives and mothers and nurses and bankers and construction workers and butchers and bakers and candlestick makers or, I guess, work for the power company, internet gurus, publishers, carpet layers, mechanics. One of the hardest things in the world is to hear that God wants to use someone else other than you, to fulfill your dreams. It's hard to hear that, isn't it? David, it won't be you, but it will be your son. And look what it says. In verse 12, it says, When your days are fulfilled and you rest with your fathers, I'm going to set up your seed after you, who will come from your body. I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. By the way, verse 13 is a complete fabrication and lie, or it's the truth. That makes sense, doesn't it? Because he did establish his throne and his kingdom forever, or he didn't. By the way, the last person to rule in David's throne was a long time ago. When the Jews finally returned to the land and the Romans came and destroyed the temple and all of the records, there hasn't been a continual person sitting on the throne of David in Israel. So how could that scripture possibly be fulfilled? Verse 14, I will be his father and he shall be my son. If he commits iniquity, I will chasten him with the rod of men, with the blows of the sons of men. He's speaking of a physical people occupying a throne. But in verse 15, he says, But my mercy shall not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Verses 14 and 15 state the principle of judgment within the family of God. It's always remedial, not necessarily punishment. Judgment of the wicked is penal not remedial. That means a just judgment. But again, Jesus Christ, the son of David, is going to both rule and reign forever. You know what that means? That he has to return. During his earthly ministry, did he ever sit on the throne of his father David? No. Did he ever rule the nation? No. But he will. David will. And it says, and your house and your kingdom shall be established forever. By the way, in verse 16, that's the Davidic covenant upon which the future kingdom of Christ, who's born of the seed of David according to the flesh in Romans 1.3, was to be founded and provided for David the promise of posterity in the Davidic house, a throne symbolic of royal authority, a kingdom or rule on the earth, certainty of fulfillment for the promise of David, look what it says, shall be established forever and ever. This is why Paul could confidently write from prison 
that at the name of Jesus, every knee would bow and every tongue would confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And then it says, I want you to skip to verse 20. Now what more can David say to you? For you, Lord God, know your servant. Now in verses 19 and 20, where it says, And yet this was a very small thing in your sight, O Lord God, and you have also spoken of your servant's house for a great while to come. Is this the manner of man, O Lord God? David, when he hears the news, this is how he deals with God's answer, no. Now, I want you to just think for just a moment. Often when we hear no, what's the first thing that wells up inside of our heart? Disappointment. Wow, Lord, I'm disappointed. So how does David deal with his disappointment? He prays. He sits down before the Lord, verse 18. Then King David went in and sat before the Lord and he said, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you brought me this far? In other words, as he sits down and like a child, David expresses his dreams and his thanksgiving like a child. Hey, God told him no. And he goes, it makes perfect sense to me. He doesn't act like a spoiled child. He doesn't go kicking and screaming and go, how dare you say no? How come I can't have my way? Have you come to the realization that God can't be manipulated like your mom and dad? Or like your pastor? I'm going to go and ask the pastor. And I'm going to make him feel really small. So he'll do what I want him to do. Hey, you know what? God can't be manipulated like the pastor. Or like your parents or like a spouse. David says, who am I, Lord? Who am I, Lord? I want you to just briefly, for a moment, pause and try to answer his question. Who are you, David? Who are you? Go ahead, give it a try. Who are you, David? You're God's child. You're Jesse's son. You are God's child. You are Jesse's son. And you are the father of a future famous son. Jesus is going to be your literal offspring. He'll be called the son of David. He'll be called the son of God. You know, there's really no greater discovery than you can ever make, ever. I was watching the Science Channel because I'm a nerd and I admit it. It was Stephen Hawking's time program and cosmology and Stephen Hawking gets into his wheelchair because he's got that terrible disease. And he goes, I am looking for the theory of everything. Because when I can figure out the theory of everything, there'll be plenty of other things for you guys to figure out. And I'm thinking, yeah, wouldn't that be great? To have a, the search for the theory of everything? to discover how the universe itself is constructed. You may discover a new world like Columbus. You may invent a product like Bill Gates that people have to buy over and over and over and over and over again. 
But there'll never be a greater discovery that you're God's child. You will never experience a greater awakening than when you realize that God loves you and that Jesus died for you and that you've been chosen and adopted and accepted in Christ and that your sins can be forgiven and heaven is your future. David counts his blessings. And as he counts his blessings, dream or no dream, he says, I'm a blessed person. Is that what you do when God says no? Do you remind yourself of who you are? And then do you begin to count your blessings? That your children are serving the Lord, that they're alive or that they're well? Do you thank God for your health or for your job? Do you thank God for the storm that he's rescued you from? Do you thank him over and over again? And in verse 20, he says, Now what more can David say to you? For you, Lord God, know your servant. David, now think about what that sentence is saying. Now what more can David say to you? For you, Lord God, know your servant. Do you understand what he's saying? David is acknowledging that the creator of the universe, the self-existent God, knows David. You know, you might brag because you know a president or somebody famous. Or you knew an actor or an actress before they became famous. But David admits something. That he's no stranger to God. And David is exposed. Naked. Stripped. He realizes that God knows him. And knows everything about him. Knows every weird. Wicked. Foolish. Horrible. Sinister. Dark. Secret. He knows He knows every single thing. He knows about David's weakness and he knows about David's failure and he knows about David's sin and he knows about David's darkness and he knows about David's human fallibility. And he still has a plan for him in the future. And then in verses 22 through 29, you know what David does? He prays. And then you know what he does? He lifts his hand in praise of God. Is that what you do? Is that what you do when God says no to you? Are you thankful? And then you go, I'm going to pray and praise God because God said no. By the way, when David talks like a grateful man, do you think it's true? Do you think he really is grateful? I do. In 1 Chronicles chapter 22, verses 1 through 5, it says, Then David said, This is the house of the Lord God, and this is the altar of burnt offering for Israel. So David commanded to gather the aliens who were in the land of Israel, and he appointed masons to cut hewn stones to build the house of God. And David prepared iron in abundance for the nails of the doors of the gates and for the joints and bronze in abundance beyond measure and cedar trees in abundance for the Sidonians and from those from Tyre brought much cedar wood to David. Now David said, 
Solomon, my son, is young and inexperienced, and the house to be built for the Lord must be exceedingly magnificent, famous and glorious throughout all the countries. I will now make preparation for it. So David made abundant preparation before his death. Do you understand what David is doing in 1 Chronicles? David is drawing up the blueprints for a temple that he can never build. David is buying lumber and nails for a temple he can never build. And even though he can't build the temple, he can support the temple. What a dad. He has highs and he has lows and this is a high. Lord, you don't want me to fulfill the dream, but Lord, I'm going to set aside and set apart as much as I can to support my son as he fulfills the dream that's on my heart. I'm going to give him the materials that he needs in order to accomplish what needs to be done. I can't help but think of another father and another son. And a father who provides future lumber and future nails. He creates a tree and he causes it to grow and he causes it to be cut down. He creates a molten iron core in the middle of a planet and knows that it's going to be forged into nails that are going to crucify his own son, God the Father. Supplies lumber and nails. And God the Father supplies his son. Jesus. And Jesus will become the greatest portion of all. I need you to get this. When you pray. And God says no. Your immediate response should be. God has a better plan for me. Father knows best. No means that you can support God in his decision in a better way. You know, it was James Dobson who said, about the time our face clears up, our brain gets fuzzy. And sometimes we have a dream. But the dream will be fulfilled by the next generation. I think of a poem, one by one he took them from me, all the things I valued most, until I was empty-handed, every glittering toy was lost, and I walked earth's highways, grieving in my rags and poverty, till I heard his voice inviting, lift those empty hands to me, so I held my hands toward heaven, and he filled them with a store of his own transcendent riches, till they could contain no more. And at last I comprehended with my stupid mind and dull that God could not pour his riches into hands already full. Even the best intentions and noblest goals cannot substitute for the will and the goals of God. It was David's idea, not God's idea for David to build a temple. Just remember that every idea that you goes through your head doesn't necessarily mean it's from God. Even good ideas. And what are you willing to do and how are you willing to support if the only person who gets the credit is David's son? 
I want to remind you of one final thing. In the book of Revelation, chapter 22, verse 16, as Jesus is saying goodbye, in Revelation 16, 22, 16, it says, Jesus says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. And then he, here's how he closes. I am the root and the offspring of David. How is such a thing possible? That the plan of God for David is going to occupy eternity. I want you to think carefully. It's always been God's plan to know you and to love you and to forgive you. It's always been God's plan for you to do what you were created to do. To honor him. To love him. To glorify him and worship him. You know what? God didn't save you so that you could be his slave or his servant. Or even his steward. The primary reason why God saved you was to fulfill God's dream. And it's always been God's dream. That you would have friendship and fellowship. And that you would be able to walk with him in intimacy, in friendship and fellowship. That's what David's son does. He provides a mechanism so that your sins are forgiven. And that you can fulfill God's dream to know him and to love him and to worship him. I've kept you way long. We're going to have communion. I'm going to have Isaac come up. I know I was having a senior moment. It's Isaac. It's Isaac over there. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, Lord, I pray for that man or that woman who is here and they're uncertain about their friendship and their fellowship with you. Lord, maybe they've prayed and maybe the answers have been confusing. Maybe they prayed and, and they... They wanted something or someone, and you said no. But Lord, I pray that you would reveal to them that your plan is the best plan, and that your will is the best will. And that even if we have great thoughts, noble thoughts, that sometimes even great thoughts and noble thoughts aren't what you want. And that when you say no, there's always a reason, and the reason is because you always have something better in mind. And so, Lord, again, I pray that you would begin to speak to hearts. And, Lord, as we prepare our hearts for communion, Lord, I pray that we could take this time to worship you and, and to renew a dream. Or perhaps, Lord, to impart a brand new dream to a brand new person. Lord, I pray that each person would have the courage to ask the question, Lord, what wonderful thing can I do for you, Lord, to make you happy, to glorify you, to bring you joy? In Jesus' name.